This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Family to which the Huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the Tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today you'll be listening to Julianne Genter, the Green MP and the spokesperson for among other things, transport and finance. Before entering politics, Julianne's professional career was in transport and urban planning. Well, welcome to Community or Chaos, Julie. Good morning. Julie, um, ironically, this is the 4th of July, America's independence holiday. So I'll start with asking, why did you choose to leave America and come to New Zealand? And what led you to stand for Parliament as a Green Party member. I've made part of that journey myself. Yeah. um, Well, I guess growing up in the United States, I always had this sense of things not being quite right. And, you know, I grew up in the 1980s and 90s, and um I lived in the Midwest a bit, rural Illinois, and also moved to Southern California when I was about seven and a half and lived there uh, until I was 16. And then my parents moved back to Minnesota. But in that time, I just, um, well, I felt a deep sense of disillusionment with the political system there, with the history of the country, um, what had happened to the indigenous people and the history of slavery and how that hadn't been rectified. And then, you know, we had this horrific inequality in Los Angeles where, you know, huge numbers of homeless people living under freeway overpasses and um, and also just the environmental degradation of the transport system and urban form was quite clear to me growing up in Southern California. So sorry, this all sounds very negative. <laughs> well, basically, after after 9-11 and there was this big um outpouring of kind of what seemed to be a kind of reflexive nationalism and uh i just thought i gotta get out of here this is terrible so after i finished university i i moved to europe and i lived in france for a few years um i wanted to learn another language and i um wanted to you know learn about other cultures i ended up in france and i i ended up studying international affairs um the third year i was there at um Sciences Po in Paris. And um, and then I got really interested in transport and urban planning because I wasn't really aware of those as a discipline before that. Um, but I always had been really interested in the relationship between transport and urban form and environmental outcomes, but also social outcomes. Um, so I ended up moving to New Zealand in 2006 to study urban planning at Auckland University, a master's degree. And um, I guess arriving in New Zealand, um, having thought a lot, you know, having spent a year considering political theory and, you know, thinking <laughs> different, um, the different relationships between um, country size and and. Uh, electoral system and healthy functioning democracy. And so my theory was a small country like New Zealand with proportional representation like MMP democracy might have a shot. And I was I was definitely, as soon as I got here, I was like the Green Party is where it's at. They're saying the things that need to be said about climate change, about inequality, about ecological 
degradation and the opportunity to live more in harmony with nature. So I I ended up in the probably about the second year I was here getting really involved as a volunteer for the Green Party. And um, and I loved the people I met and I loved I found it really interesting and fascinating. And um, it was a couple of years after I started working as a transport consultant, um, I found myself um, speaking on the public stage at events uh, like conferences and also doing national media interviews. And I was very nervous about these, but I was so passionate about the issues. I felt like I, I needed to speak up and I was surprised that I got really positive feedback about my communication style. And so I thought, well, maybe it would be helpful if I stood to help campaign for the Green Party vote in 2011 when I became a citizen. And that that year, we the Greens ended up getting a record number of MPs. So I wasn't really expecting to be elected to parliament, um, but I thought, well, it'd be cool if I was, but it seems highly unlikely. And then I was ranked 13 on the list and you know, our polling shot up about six weeks before the election and um, I was elected on election day. We ended up getting 14 MPs and I've um, it's been a huge privilege to represent the Green Party and to fight for meaningful policy changes that help communities um, respond to their environmental challenges and uh, also to try and, you know, make things fairer for people here, you know, like to help people who really need it the most. So uh, you've found a a new start in some ways in New Zealand and also a place to practice your politics. Yeah. And, you know, I used to joke that um, living in the United States, I never aspired to be a politician, even though I was really passionate about political issues. I thought I, I didn't see politicians as a solution but um, in fact, uh, I, it was probably the first time I started to have faith in that was in democracy was when I went, I was at UC Berkeley as an undergrad and I lived in the university students housing cooperative. And um, that was very democratic. And I thought, well, geez, if a bunch of 20 year olds can sit around and uh, allocate, you know, a million dollar budget to home improvement projects, um, you know, it should it should be possible, and um, and in fact, if we don't participate in politics, and if we if we don't have representatives who are committed to better outcomes for all of us, um, then it you know it will be um, those with the worst motivations that end up controlling our political system. And and you know, and you have seen that in the United States, you know, with the likes of Donald Trump being elected president um, through a pretty screwed up electoral system and a lack of faith in democracy. Also a lack of faith in willing to experiment. I suspect the leaders of the Democratic Party, especially the fundraisers, would rather have taken a chance on Trump actually winning than on Bernie Sanders becoming president, which seems crazy from this perspective, but I think it happened. Yeah. And I think, I mean, like, I guess the lesson and I, cause I feel like I've been a bit negative here. Um, I want, I mean, I really truly believe that we can do things better, that we can live in harmony with nature, that we can live in harmony with each other, that together there are many examples in human history of people working together and creating systems that are more balanced, that have power shared more equally and uh, tackling really big challenges. And that's the world I want to live in. And so, you know, I want help be part of that but i also feel it's really important for me to communicate to people that we need everyone we need everyone to participate um otherwise um if you opt out of the democratic process then you know it will it will mean that the you know the richest and the most powerful and the most divisive people um end up in charge you know and getting more and more of the resources and that's that's not good for anyone what do you think of when you hear the phrase the common good the common good for me i mean you know you think of it's an old phrase very old it's older than socialism i mean it's like the natural resources we we live in this world that had abundant natural resources and you think of the oceans and the um, the air, 
the climate, um, the things that we all need to live a good life, um, the basics, you know, with all the different advances in humans' ability to harness natural resources and developments in technology, we have the ability to make sure that every human being has um, a decent, warm, dry home that's secure, that has enough healthy Kai food, you know, nourishing food to eat and uh, opportunity at education. Um, and I think in doing that and in living in balance with nature, um, you know, we, we could have a sustainable human civilization that lasted uh, for a very, you know, a very long time. How do you feel about the failure of the Labour Green government to take a lead in mitigating climate change, carbon and methane emissions, particularly in agriculture? And yeah, basically that. And, and well, I, I mean, firstly, the most important thing I think for people to realize is that the Green Party has not been in a formal coalition yet. Um, you know, in 2017 to 2020, we gave confidence and supply to a coalition between Labour and New Zealand First. And in 2020 to now, uh, Labour's had a majority government where they did not need our votes in, from the Greens. And therefore, uh, basically, we had very limited influence. And we we tried to constructively and positively influence where we could, and we had some wins. But on the issue of um, agriculture and how it's treated as part of the um, emissions trading scheme or as part of our plan to reduce uh, our greenhouse gas emissions and transition to a sustainable um, society. Uh, we just haven't had the influence that we need. So I would definitely put it firmly in the responsibility of labor, the situation that we're in right now is labor. And to some extent, New Zealand first last term. But also National and ACT have a, a big role to play because in opposition, they have actively campaigned against any action alongside um, AstroTurf groups like Groundswell, which are basically, you know, set up by ACT Party supporters and the people who founded the Taxpayers Union. So there's a very small number of very wealthy people uh, who represent not who don't really represent farmers or agriculture. Um, I'd say there's a lot of farmers out there who want to do the right thing, who are doing the right thing. Uh, but they're, you know, as long as we don't change the system, they're undercut by those who kind of create the most environmental damage. And that's a minority of, of farmers. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's frustrating, but the, at this election, we have the best opportunity to potentially influence the future government. You know what I mean? It's like if we get a um, Labour government that has a strong Green Party and coalition around the cabinet table, we can really start to negotiate some changes. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that we have to take on some of these big vested interests and make the changes. And, you know, you, you can work alongside people all you want, but at some point, you know, we have to have leadership. It's been over 20 years now since we first started talking about some sort of mm. pricing of agricultural mm. emissions, and it still isn't happening. And did, we're running out of time. Did you see the movie Hot Air by any chance? Yeah, I did. It's, Quite a while ago. Yeah, it was interesting that Pete Hodgkin wanted to tax uh, carbon and methane, and the business community scared them out of it. Do you think that monetary incentives and monetary trading is the best is the best way forward for dealing with climate change, or do you think we should use well, other alter other um, alternatives as well? I mean, I definitely I don't think it's the only thing, right? I mean, I think there's probably a role for pricing that that could help. There's also a role for regulation. Um, and there's a role for just a broader campaign for conservation and rewilding, um, you know, changing the way we use land. Um, and I think I was very influenced by the book Half Earth um, by E.O. Wilson, which was written in 2016. 
And, and he argues that, you know, because we can't just tackle climate change. We also have a biodiversity crisis and the biodiversity crisis is mainly driven by loss of habitat and the loss of habitat for native wild ecosystems is also implicated in the climate change problem. So I think we have to tackle both at the same time. And um, there is, a, you know, we've got what we've got a, a pretty extensive conservation estate in New Zealand, but we probably need to take a really hard look at the way land is used and where there's opportunities to convert land away from agriculture to whatever that NATO native ecosystem is. Um, that is probably a better solution than say pine forestry. You know what I mean? Whereas no. the, 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 the pricing drives us to, to pine forestry when in fact native um, ecosystems are what we need more of. Okay. And yes, there's a role for sustainable forestry, but um, you know the greens. It's a it's a much more nuanced approach to how we solve that problem of land use, and I think it's something that we need to talk more about. Speaking of land use, should we be caring for our horticultural land, or should we build building houses on it? Oh well, definitely, <laughs> we should not be building houses on. I mean, that's, that's one thing we've been doing for years, really. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's it's so it's so interesting the path dependency there. You know, like um, when I first got into urban planning, I was sort of amazed to find that while a lot of urban planning documents talk about a compact city, and you know things being more walkable, you know, with mixed use, good public transport, providing more homes within the existing urban area to preserve, you know, land either for wetlands or wild native ecosystem or horticulture. And um, and yet the rules in the planning documents were basically driving, were like preventing the things they said they wanted. So a big part of my career early on was communicating to people about the harmful impacts of some of the technical rules around zoning and around parking requirements that were having these unintended consequences. And we have managed to get some movement. It took a lot longer than I expected. It, you know, it took over 10 years, but um, We've managed to change some of those rules, but we still we still haven't quite got it right. You know what I mean? And um, there's a huge like political economy around um, new greenfield subdivisions are very profitable for developers mm. and those landowners, and they go out and run these really long term campaigns for motorways. You know to open up that mm. land for housing and then they argue you need it for cheaper housing of course it's more expensive transport for the people who live out there um and so you don't really get a that a goes benefit. to taxation doesn't it and the fact that we don't have a, a capital gains tax and the, the fastest way to get rich in new zealand is uh through housing and um, land yeah i mean land speculation has been a big driver of New Zealand's colonial culture. I mean, I think the New Zealand Herald was founded to make the case for invasion of the Waikato because land speculators ran out of land to sell up in Auckland and wanted to, you know, invade and find more land to sell down in the Waikato. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty shocking once you really start to look into it. And and it's still driving when I look at the quote unquote, shovel ready projects, none of which were, were shovel ready that were announced in the New Zealand upgrade program by the Labour Party and the, you know, the Labour government um, in 2020. The only thing that makes sense for why those motorway projects would be prioritized is Greenfields land developers lobbying for it, you know, because they, they don't make sense from a point of view of transport. They don't really make a lot of electoral sense, you know, because it, they're going to take so long to provide okay. those roads. And, Would you support um, uh, capital gains tax then? Oh, yeah. The Greens support capital gains tax. Of course, we just went out with our big income and tax policy um, where we've proposed um, some changes like lifting the corporate tax rate, tax-free threshold on the you know first 10000 of income for everyone is tax-free. Um, 
uh, higher rate at 180,000, which brings us into a line with Australia, 45% on every dollar you earn over 180,000. But the biggest part of it is a wealth tax, which um, we said would be two and a half percent on net assets over $2 million for an individual or over 4 million for a couple. So that would catch about the top 1% with the wealth tax. But I still think there's room and space to talk about a capital gains tax, absolutely. Do you think we've actually collect enough taxation revenue to pay for things we need like hospitals, healthcare, education, including tertiary education, and also the conservation of the state? Do we need to actually collect more wealth? Well, um, I think, yeah, I think our tax system has gotten really unbalanced, you know. Um, we used to have a tax system that kind of kept the gap between the richest and the poorest quite quite small, and it's gotten very large in recent years. If you look at the wealthiest 311 families, they own, you know, almost 200 times more than two, the bottom 2 million New Zealanders, um, and that's a huge gap. Uh, so um, I think there's an opportunity to make changes to the tax system that means the lower and middle income people pay less and the high income and high net worth individuals pay more. And in doing that, we raise more revenue that we can use to put into our health system, uh, to put into infrastructure that we need, put into social services. And when we spend more money in some areas, we will reduce our costs in other areas over time. Like right now we spend you know, because our primary health system is so hard to access and so expensive, we probably spend way more on emergency department admissions, which are really expensive. So there's opportunities to do more prevention, to invest in people early on. You know, if we fix our housing, we'd probably prevent a bunch of childhood if we if we tackled actually between housing and NOx emissions from diesel vehicles, we could prevent um childhood asthma cases, uh, and then that would reduce emergency department uh, pressure, right, and cost, save money, healthier people, better environmental outcomes. These are the kind of win-win solutions that have drawn me to green politics and keep me hopeful. It's like, surely we can all agree to do this stuff because we're all going to benefit. It seems to me there's two stories that are going around about taxation. One story that came about in the late 1980s was that taxation's evil and wicked and it steals from us and we shouldn't really have to pay for taxation. Each We should all look after each other, ourselves, and, and taxation was, was a waste and created waste. And there's another story, it seems to me, that when you have a good taxation system like Germany or um, or even France, you you get good health care for everyone. You get it. You get good education and other things. And so, if things go bad for you, say you say you're an investor and you invest in the wrong things, you go bankrupt. It doesn't mean you starve. It doesn't mean you don't get it. see a doctor if you have a if you're willing to pay for a welfare state that actually. If you have a welfare state that's working, people are more likely to be able, be happy to pay taxes. If they don't think it's working and they think they have to look after themselves, then they're less willing to pay taxes. Is there any truth in that? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think you, you nailed that. Yeah, that's, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head in terms of the narrative. And I see this very much in New Zealand, a kind of people dismissing things as though taxes are the problem and so and the right parties like national and act really play this up and play up the oh the all the, the all your problems are taxes and costs put on by government when in reality a lot of the cost of living problems caused now are you know um caused by big corporates putting up their prices and making excess profits you know <laughs> um like the banks and the energy companies and the um, construction, building materials, 
um, company, you know, like people that there's not a lot of competition in these areas, supermarkets. Um, and so we know they're making tons and tons of money and owners of supermarkets are millionaires now. Um, and they're doing this, you know, it's, and yet what, what people don't realize is if we, if we don't raise enough revenue, then, you know, paying tax is a great thing because you can get really great public services and infrastructure. And ironically, I, I hear the ACT Party and the National Party arguing they're going to spend a lot more money on infrastructure. But at the same time, they're not really explaining how they're going to pay for that. And um, they're saying, oh, we should pay less tax. But when they say we should pay less tax, they primarily mean the very wealthiest people who can most afford to pay tax. That's who they think should pay less tax. And the ACT Party's tax proposal actually puts up tax on low and middle income people. So, um, I, yeah, I think I think it's hard to break through that narrative, though, that idea that that tax is a bad thing. And when the Greens are trying to talk about fixing the tax system and we're saying, well, you know, actually, the wealthiest people are not paying their fair share, and we can get a lot better public services and infrastructure if we fix that. And everybody benefits from that, including the wealthiest people. You know, I mean, who wants to be a super wealthy person in a country where you um, have increasing numbers of homeless people living on the street? And you, you know what I mean? You, there's increasing crime. I, I think New Zealanders, it's a small country, people have a sense of, belonging to this country. And I don't, I, I think that's one of the problems in the United States, very similar situation, right? But in this, in the United States, people don't have that shared sense of community because it's such a big place. Also, I think inequality actually destroys community. It does. If you, if you, if you feel left out, if you think that, that nobody's concerned about your problems, you may have a sense of alienation. You may um, vote foolishly because you're angry, because you don't like the government because they, they, you feel betrayed. Could, for instance, Jacinda Ardern had lots of political talent, and she, could she have helped change our attitudes toward taxation? Don't we need to take talk about taxation frankly? the leaders of the parties in the country, and you talk about taxation and why it's virtuous and why the tax system we have is not virtuous and not fair. Yeah, I, We could I mean, have a virtuous, fair I taxation system. I think Edern was a very talented political communicator, um, and her instincts were very much to... Um, to kind of go where people wanted to go. So in a crisis, when it, you know, it came to responding to the Christchurch mosque attacks or um, when it was responding to COVID, I think in those moments, she saw an opportunity because people felt really strongly that, you know, that we actually had to do something quite bold with respect to banning semi-automatic guns and then, shutting down the country to respond to COVID. But I think the majority of people supported uh, already what she was doing. And I think, unfortunately, with tax changes and capital gains tax, um, there was no immediate crisis. There was no campaign for it. And there was a big campaign against it. And she didn't feel like she could move people on that. And, and I think that's a shame because I actually think she could have. And I think we knew that what was proposed with the capital gains tax from the tax working group, that the majority of New Zealanders would be better off as a result of those changes. And I think sometimes, you know, you have to, sometimes you have to show leadership and, and do something that maybe has 45% support, but, but you know, afterwards it's going to have 80% support because people are better off. And, you know, luckily they did go ahead with the clean car discount, uh, which was a policy I worked on in government. And I convinced the Labour Party to support. Um, they were skeptical initially. And I think it's a good example of where we needed to do something to incentivize low and zero emissions vehicles to come into New Zealand. and. The only way we could do that fairly was to ask the more polluting vehicles to pay a fee. And that's very common policy overseas. Um, you know, Norway, they have, uh, Denmark, they have, Norway and Denmark have huge taxes on cars. Like, I mean, we're talking almost the price of the car again, you pay in tax. 
Um, France brought in a fee bait uh, over 20 years ago, and their largest fee is now uh, 30,000 euro, which is like $60,000. So even though it's just a minor one, it's like a $5,000 fee on the most polluting vehicles, which are brand new vehicles, Range Rovers, double cab utes, like, you know, they're not cheap vehicles. Um, And what's interesting about that policy is that after they brought it in, it was hugely successful. It was more successful than they expected. Um, We've seen like massive, massive growth in zero emissions vehicles and a 50% reduction in gas guzzlers coming into the country, which was really important to, to, you know, for uh, both air quality and for climate change. Um, and what's interesting is that the polling shows that even though ACT and National attacked this policy and made it sound unfair, even though it's very fair, um, a majority of New Zealanders support mm. the policy. A majority of New Zealanders support the fees on polluting vehicles, and a majority of na- self-identified National Party voters support the idea of polluting vehicles paying a fee. So I think that's an example where we we made pro- we proved it could be done. Changes on taxation, whereas people, most of the political wisdom around here was you can't bring this in, it's too much political capital, uh, people will reject it. But once it was brought in, people saw it was effective and saw it was fair. And I think we need that kind of leadership on income, wealth and capital gains tax as well. There was recently a survey of people on uh, the raising the um, age for retirement um, and asking if people would be willing to pay more taxes if they kept the age for retirement at present 65. And most of the people replied yes, they'd be willing to pay higher taxes in order to keep the retirement um, age where it is. I think the idea that people can't change their mind about taxation is a False, false idea that we sort of use to excuse ourselves from not trying to change it. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I'm certainly hopeful. I think we could do more. And I'm hopeful that the Green Party's proposals around okay. tax and income, you know, make some progress in that respect during want- the selection campaign, that people see hmm. someone, a party, putting something on the table that is transformational. Um and is changing the debate and okay. uh, and shows we can end poverty in New Zealand. And, you and want to go into policy. some more detail about the tax reforms that the Greens are promoting? Well, um, yeah, and it is worth anyone who's listening should go on the website um, and check it out. Um, so if you go to greens.org.nz, um, you, you should be able to find it. Or if you Google uh, Green Party tax, um, we, we're calling it the income guarantee. Um, so if you if you look up the income guarantee, we also have a calculator where you can put in your income and your net assets and see mm-hmm. if you would pay more or less tax based on um, your income okay. and your assets. There is there are some things that need to be slightly fixed with the calculator because if you're on a benefit like a sickness benefit or something else, it doesn't quite tell you the right thing. Um, but the, you can read the whole detail of the policy and basically. Oh, okay. What about for people that aren't online? And what can uh, we say? That's a good good question. I think for people who aren't online, they can um, call uh, the Green Party office and we can send you a copy of the policy and how it works. Um, we've said basically there's an income guarantee of, um, uh, sorry, I've just got the exact amount. It's like um, $358 a week um, if you're... Um, out of work, if you're a student, if you're sick, and then like there's additional extras if you have children or if you're a couple or, you know, there's, it's basically overhauls and simplifies our social security system. And we also propose changing ACC. At the moment, ACC only covers you if you have an accident and they act a bit like a private insurer. We want to transform ACC into an agency for comprehensive care so that um, it can support people who are disabled or sick, whether it's because of an accident or other reasons, like you're born with a disability or you um, had an illness that caused a disability. Um, and so that'll make a huge difference to uh, people who are going through hard times, ensuring that they have enough money to live yeah. off of. And when we combine those policies with 
um, our housing policy, which we just announced at the weekend, um, which would slow the growth in rent prices and build a whole lot more houses, um, particularly in urban areas near public transport, um, you know, high quality, energy efficient, fully accessible um, apartments, townhouses within the existing urban area, allowing more shops and things as well that provides real opportunities for people to have uh, higher quality of life, um, to be able to make ends meet. How and much will they pay a quarter of their income, half their income? What's will that? It be, will it be set according to the income they, they earn? The rent? No. Yeah. We What we've talked about is, um, I mean, that is the case for um, social housing currently, and we have talked about massively increasing social and public housing supply, state houses. But... Um, uh, that we've also just proposed a control on rent rises. So landlords can't put up the rent more than 3% any given year um, unless they can demonstrate they've made massive investments in the property, like building a new kitchen or something, um, or totally renovating the house. Having so a, it, doesn't having a house that's livable and also secure, doesn't that increase the family's prosperity in the children's likelihood of getting an education if they don't have to move two or three times uh, every year or so because of the rent going up or because uh, they don't have adequate housing. Does yeah, that's it, absolutely that, right. That is absolutely right. I mean, it's a human right, and it, it benefits everyone in society to address the issues with housing and incomes. You know, if we don't have children growing, growing up in poverty or growing up in insecure housing, uh, we're going to have fewer problems with child crime, with um, kids going to the hospital because they're sick. Um, you know, people can make their best contribution to their community and to society if they can grow up with a secure income and secure housing. Okay. Who's going to pay more taxes in this um, when the tax changes come in? By the way, I just need to correct something I said. The income guarantee is 385 per week after tax okay. for everyone. And for couples, at least 770. And a single parent will always have at least 735 a week after tax. Yeah. And we, um, we also end up providing tax cuts of between 16 and $26 a week for 3.7 million New Zealanders. Um, and... It's the top 0.7% of wealth owners who pay more tax on, who finally pay proper um, tax on their income from their assets. And um, the income tax changes mean everyone on over $120,000 a year pays a bit more, and everyone on less than $120,000 a year pays less. But everybody will benefit from the investments that we're able to make in our public services. And we haven't announced all of those policies yet, but we, we will have some exciting policies coming that everybody will benefit from as well. So maybe you'll pay a little bit more tax if you're on a higher income, but you'll also benefit from um, better public services. Okay, I'm gonna play a piece of music now and then we come back and talk about transportation perhaps. Yeah, sure. Well, just on the 1st of July, we um, saw the Community Connect, which is permanent half-price public transport for people with community service cards and total mobility card holders. Those are people with disabilities. Um, the government went further and promised in the budget free public transport for children under the age of 12 or 12 and under, and um, half-price public transport for all those under the age of 25. I think there's some work that needs to be done to implement that properly. But um, so it like, for example, in Wellington, they've extended half-price public transport for a month while they put in place the administration <laughs> to be able to verify people's ages and give them these benefits. But this is something the Green Party campaigned on is more affordable fares. And you know we called for free fares. We've, we've called for much greater investment in public transport services, not just in our largest cities, even in our small and medium-sized cities, we can have really well-functioning public transport if we invest in it properly. And we'd also like to see national provision of 
interregional services, making better use of our existing rail network with uh, rails, passenger rail services, bringing our rail network back up to scratch and investing and modernizing it so we can run uh, more frequent and and affordable services between cities. And those should be joined up with bus services where necessary to give better access to our more rural um, towns and cities. Okay, I'm going to play a piece of music now. Look at me, I'm a train on a track, I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train, yeah. Look at me, got a load on my back, I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train, yeah. Look at me, I'm going somewhere, I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train, yeah. Look at me, I'm going somewhere. I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train. Yeah, been a hard day, yes it has been a hard day, yes it has been a hard day, yes it has. I'm a train, I'm a chicken train, I'm a chicken train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train, chicken train. Yeah. I'm a train on a line, I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train, yeah. Look at me for the very last time, I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train, yeah. It's been a life that's long and hard, I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train, yeah. I'm going down to the breakers yard, I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train, yeah. Been a That was I'm a Train, and we're talking with Julianne Genter about uh, taxation and transport, and you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos. What are some of the important aspects of public transport that's good for the community and good for the environment? Well, it's a funny thing. Um, the way that I've been thinking about this, like if government hasn't invested in frequent public transport that makes it easy and affordable to get around without a car, then essentially using a car isn't a choice. So we get from the right-wing parties a lot of, um, oh, people choose to use cars. But the reality is a lot of people don't have a choice. And having to own a car and run a car to get everywhere 
is really expensive. I mean, that puts thousands and thousands of dollars on people's budget. You know, it's probably the single biggest expense after after their housing costs and food costs. Um, and yeah, for people who have plenty of money, maybe owning a car is a choice. Um, but we need to provide the alternatives to people. And that can be a network of separated infrastructure that people can use micro mobility on, you know, that can be bikes, electric bikes, scooters, electric scooters, trikes, mobility scooters, um, all sorts of things. And those are much more affordable. They give people, you know, that freedom to get around at different times of the day. Um, but until we make it safe and provide separation from cars and trucks, it's not, you know, it's not a real choice for many people. Um, and uh, so if, if we invest in those separated networks for public for public transport and for micromobility and we make them work together, then we really start to give people a lot of options, right? Um, and the more people take public transport, the fewer cars there are trying to get around the city at the same time, that reduces congestion, it reduces emissions, it reduces household and business costs. Um, and it reduces the amount of land you have to use up for parking cars. And that land can be used for housing or green space or shops, you know, for the, the real purposes of the city. Um, so it's just like a win, 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 win if you invest in a complete and balanced transport network. Um, and, and while government might spend a bit more on public transport services, they end up spending as a country, we end up spending less per person on transport as a whole because uh, cars and trucks are kind of the most expensive way to move a lot of people around. Um, it doesn't mean there's not a place for cars and trucks in our transport system. There absolutely is. But, um, you know, it's high cost, it's high emissions, uses enormous amounts of land, uh, very difficult from a congestion point of view in, in our busy urban areas. Um, and I think we, we just have this great opportunity to get better outcomes for people and the planet by planning our transport system more around people and goods uh, rather than the old school 20th century way of doing it, which was really just about uh, private vehicles and used up a lot of land and basically cut off opportunities for people. It's interesting until the 1880s, I mean, 19, sorry, 1980s, until Roger Douglas came along, if you you were meant to use um, rail, if you were for freight, if you were going more than fifty long, fifty miles, and if you were alongside a railway track, also um, that um, most countries that use rail in public and other public forms of transport. They subsidize it, but they find, don't they find by subsidizing or actually having public transport that while it costs to do that, it benefits the economy way past the money they're spending for the public transport? Well, that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's it. You've, you've got, it's again, it's kind of like the taxation narrative. Um, there's this funny narrative that says, oh, public transport can't work in New Zealand or rail can't work in New Zealand. Um, and it takes subsidies and therefore it's not economically efficient. But um, the cost to the New Zealand economy of, you know, almost everyone having to own and operate a private vehicle is staggering, not to mention the land that it takes and the congestion, you know, it's just such high costs. Um, and so, yeah, investing in public transport and subsidizing the fares makes economic sense because the subsidy is less than the cost of not doing it. <laughs> and it's the same with rail freight as well. I mean, we found that there was a value of rail report that Ernst and Young did a few years ago that found the value of rail was many, many times more the amount that government was putting in. Doesn't so, it actually make it easier the fact that we're containers and with uh, inland ports where you switch um, from a truck to rail and back and forth that it's actually cheaper and easier to move freight by rail than it used to be if you put in the proper infrastructure. Yep, yep, that's right. That is totally right. Yeah, and I think there's a role for coastal shipping in New Zealand as well. I think if you make coastal shipping, rail and road work together, 
um, you can massively bring down the cost of moving freight and the emissions of moving freight. And at the moment, like, you know, everyone's complaining that many of our roads are in a terrible state. Well, this is the consequence of the national government last term allowing heavier trucks with, you know, heavier loads. And they claimed that this was going to allow more efficient freight movement, but um, it just meant heavier trucks with more horsepower shredding our roads at the same time as the national government stopped, you know, froze funding for maintenance and renewals. And then we've got higher frequency and intense rainfall events the last few years because of climate change. And all of that is a recipe for destroying our roads. So I don't think the full cost of moving goods by road is internalized. And, you know, we're in that state of it, of like, because things are out of balance, there aren't frequent services and the infrastructure isn't up to scratch to offer freight forwarders that many options on coastal shipping or rail as what we could do. But the more options, the more we move by coastal shipping and rail, the more attractive it will be for people to use those options. How about passenger and, rail? Yeah, same with passenger rail. It's like in public transport. It's like if you don't provide the services, then there's no demand. And then you're in the death spiral of passenger transport or rail freight or coaster shipping. If but we then upgraded passenger, passenger service, could we get more people um, using rail instead of flying? And wouldn't that do something to our carbon emissions? Yeah, I think I, I definitely think there's a case for it. We just heard um, the inquiry into the future of passenger rail at the select committee that I'm deputy chair of the transport and infrastructure select committee. And there's huge appetite. And I spoke at this future of rail conference um, in Wellington last week, and there's huge, huge appetite. There's a strong economic case for investing in the passenger services um, and a strong environmental case for it as well with responding to climate change. Okay, we've just got a couple of minutes. So what are your hopes for New Zealand? Well, my hope is that we elect a very strong Green Party into a coalition government um, after October 14th this year, and that we are able to start making progress on these transformational changes that you and I have talked about today to the tax system, to the benefit system, to provide secure incomes and secure housing for everyone, to uh, transform our transport system in a way that benefits people and the planet and community. Um, and I think there's probably more work we need to do in terms of community and public broadcasting, um, like, like what you do um, to give people the news that they need to have in order to be informed citizens. And we probably need to um, improve our democratic system at local and central government level to make sure it's genuinely representing people and it's not being bought out by uh, big money and big corporate interests. Um, I think New Zealand has enormous potential to um, thrive in the 21st century as the whole planet is facing catastrophic climate change. We have water, we have land, we have the ability to grow food, we have abundant renewable electricity, um, and we have a, you know, a small democratic system that people still feel somewhat close to. And so I hope that we can build on that uh, for our kids and grandkids. Okay, thank you very much for that. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.